Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. From Motley Fool Pro and Options, Jeff Fisher. And from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Chief Investment Officer, Andy Cross. Good to see you, gentlemen. Hey, hey. We've got the latest earnings from the restaurant industry, the financial service industry, and more. We will dip into the Fool mailbag, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the social network. Shares of Facebook down 6% on a combination of slower revenue growth and higher costs. And Jason, on the conference call, CEO Mark Zuckerberg talked about the opportunities, particularly for WhatsApp, the mobile messaging company that Facebook bought. Analysts seemed a little bit more focused on the fact that WhatsApp cost $22 billion and has yet to produce a dime. I think we're all focused on that, Chris. I mean, that is definitely the low-hanging fruit, I think, where, where Facebook is concerned. Uh, but I, let's look at the quarter. By all metrics, it was a very strong quarter. Facebook continues to bring in just phenomenal numbers on, on every count. And, and I think that really the reaction we saw after hours, and, and it was very specific to something that was mentioned in the call, once they started talking about expenses uh, ratcheting up next year, 45 to 50 percent, they're investing more in the business. Uh, I, I think that we're seeing the, the short-term versus long-term sort of conundrum play out there because uh, the, short, the short-term thinking uh, is, is what you know, dumped the stock and tried to move to, to greener pastures. But, but uh, you know, Facebook is also an interesting situation because it's running into this, into this sort of big numbers problem. And just to, just to put some context around that, a better understanding, if you look at their mobile monthly active user growth. Mobile monthly active users is a big metric, and it's an, an important metric uh, to judge the health of that business. But if you look at the growth there, in the third quarter of 2012, that actually grew 61%. Okay, In 2013, it grew only 45%. And this year, this quarter, it grew only 29%. So there is deceleration in that growth there. It's not necessarily that they're doing anything wrong, though. It's just because they're already so big. Uh, so I, I think that if you are a long-term uh, investor, as as we are here, obviously, the story is very much intact. The thesis is still very much intact. And I think there's still a lot of value uh, yet to be created. And we talk about that, the too big to to succeed or too big to fail kind of argument when we look at Facebook and other companies for the Motley Fool One. We we think of that criteria. It's an important one for these large companies like Google, like Facebook, like Berkshire Hathaway that have to invest this capital and get higher and higher returns at higher rates. When you're so large, that's difficult to do. And I'd say in the call, I th- one, one thing I really appreciated seeing was Zuckerberg was very clear in calling out his three-year plan, his five-year plan, and his 10-year plan. So that's one of the benefits here of having sort of a young tech-oriented founder leader here is he really is looking at this business uh, you know, through the lens of decades. And I think that investors have to be encouraged by that. Yeah, he's great at that. He's very long-term thinking. And when they talk about expenses going up, like Jason mentioned, 50% possibly next year or more, it reminds me of Google in its first few years. And, and a lot of this expense is in headcount. Facebook is hiring a lot more people. So if you're looking for a gig, you know, head to Facebook. The good thing is, at your work, you can you can be on Facebook all day. It's just part of the job. Yeah, that's right. No, Star- I think it's good that they're spending to grow. Starbucks fourth quarter profits rose more than seventeen percent. Uh, it was a record quarter for revenue. Jeff nineteenth straight quarter sales have risen, and yet despite all that, Wall Street seemed a little unimpressed. Just a little bit. The, they they. We're a little shy of estimates, but I think it's still a good stock, still a good company to own for the long term. Uh, Starbucks is nearly as old as I am. It was founded in 1971, 
and they grew they grew sales eleven percent this year that that's just wrapping up, and they're expected to grow sixteen to eighteen percent next year, including their Starbucks Japan uh, acquisition, which they're buying back, and earnings will should grow up go up even more than that twenty percent ish. So this company is still growing sharply. Same store sales in the U.S. were up five percent, which was one percentage point shy of hopes, but still good. And two points of that was from food. So food is starting to get some traction. And Starbucks has a lot of fun things down the down the pipeline. If you want to talk about that, I was just going to say what caught my eye as someone who can barely make it through the day without coffee. <laughs> uh, Howard Schultz talked about the second half of 2015. Certain markets will be able to use the Starbucks mobile app to have food and coffee delivered. That's right. Uh, I'm in. Chris, you're never leaving the Motley Fool. I'm never. Le- uh, yeah. <laughs> you're never leaving your house. <laughs> Yeah, delivery is starting next year in, in key markets. They're also launching about a 100-store concept called Starbucks Reserve and the Rotisserie, which is high-end coffee, very uh, fine, small-batch coffee. Chicken? Rotisserie chicken? No, uh, roastery. Did oh, I say rotisserie? Yeah. Roastery, yes. <laughs> so we're Howard having with a spigot just turning the chicken. chicken. We're going to see the craft coffee, coffee movement, I think, here. Yeah. I think for coffee snobs like us, that'll probably be very well received. They did do a little bit of this with, with one of their – their products that I just don't think really ever took off. I mean, they they have some of those really high end machines. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. And then they have Tivana going and, t- and more tea locations. So they have a lot of irons in the fire. And uh, they added about five hundred new stores this quarter. There's still have a lot of room to grow internationally. They're doing well too. GoPro is the video camera popular with extreme sports fans. GoPro, the stock, seems to be popular with investors, shares up more than 10% on Friday after third quarter profits came in higher than expected. And Andy, looking ahead, they expect the holiday to be a pretty strong one for them, too. Yeah, I think we need a GoPro camera here for the radio show just to catch us all in the action. I mean, like, uh, Chris, really the most impressive thing is they, for the first time, for the very first quarter, outside of the fourth quarter, they sold more than a million units. And that's just impressive. Up more than 25%. Gross margins are up from 33% to 44%, um, up from 42% to 44%. Quarter over quarter, sales growth up 45%, up 15% quarter over quarter, sequentially. So it's just, this is really firing, I think, fast. I mean, the stock came out at what in the mid-20s, and now it's just skyrocketed over a few, for a few months. Um, the, the media ecosystem that GoPro is building is really starting to develop. They have all of these uploads and all these viewership to Google, and that's growing. They have sponsorships, and they have more and more products that are, seem to be doing really well and resonating with customers. So certainly things are going very well for GoPro. It also seems like this is the first year in a while where when people start talking about this time of year of the must-have holiday gadget, this is the first year in a while that I can remember that we're not talking about a, a gadget made by Apple. Yeah, they they, they last uh, last fourth quarter last year they did they did almost 1.5 million units and and I think the whisper numbers will go up to two million units and if they get past two million which is a lot I mean that's significant growth that will be substantial and there certainly will be some whispers out there that they can do that it is the hot new thing it does sound like it's going to be the holiday gift to get and if someone would have told me a couple of years ago that a standalone video camera would be the hot new thing I would have politely mocked them <laughs> I mean, who would have imagined? Politely. (laughs) 
Twitter's third quarter revenue more than doubled from a year ago. That is where the good news appears to end, Jason, because shares down more than 15% this week. I guess we can't have the World Cup every single quarter, can we? (laughs) No, I guess not. Uh, But I think if you look through the release in the call and you weren't paying attention at all to what the stock was doing, uh, either either aftermarket or, or the next day, I, I think that you would have looked at this and said, "Hey, that's a pretty good quarter." I mean, they met on the numbers there, uh, guided to to within range that was was within the expe- uh, expected range uh, to begin with, and so I think that really, uh, you know, Twitter is facing a number of question marks, and I think that's probably the biggest problem with this with this uh, the perception of the stock today in the market is. You know, there is just a lot of uncertainty out there as to what Twitter actually is, how it's being measured, uh, you know, what kind of opportunity is still out there. But, you know, I, I have to kind of laugh at these people with the concern of slowing growth. I mean, perhaps growth is slowing down somewhat. I don't think there's any kind of a trend really there that you can establish. And I mean, just to give you an idea of, of their numbers versus something like Facebook, and Facebook is obviously bigger, so their growth should be slower. But Twitter monthly active users are up 20, 23% year over year. Facebook was 14%. Uh, quarterly revenue was up 114% year over year. Facebook was 59%. So to sit there and say that Twitter's not growing is, is I, I think, a silly statement, honestly. But, I mean, there are questions as far as how they're going to continue to grow. And I think the bigger questions uh, that, that the market is concerned with today is how are we going to measure that? How do we understand how this company is succeeding? And when you see the shakeup in the boardroom and with management, with leadership there like we've seen, I think those questions are certainly very valid. By the same token, I think you know we, we've seen something that sort of flew under the radar. Uh, this alliance with with IBM, I think, is going to be uh, very interesting. I think it validates the power of these social platforms and the data that something like Twitter can generate. So, so again, I mean, as a shareholder in Twitter, I felt very good about the quarter. Uh, I think that when you see dips like this, if you, if you're interested in owning the shares, these are these are the times to buy when the pessimism is really high. Do you think Dick Costello did a good enough job managing expectations? And, and he seems like someone who is very smart in a lot of ways. But I, I, I just feel like when they surprised people the last quarter with something that was really fueled by the World Cup and all the activity around that, I think if I were Dick Costello, I would have spent the last three months just reminding analysts, hey, look, we don't have the World Cup this quarter. This quarter is just not going to be as impressive as you might think. Yeah, I think maybe he downplayed the the importance of the World Cup a little bit last quarter, and you could see him do that this quarter as well. And and so for me, I think I, I, I would have rather seen him acknowledge the significance of the event and the significance of future events, because I think that Twitter certainly it benefits tremendously from these events. You're going to see uh, them play a big part of, of these coming elections cycles as well. They just introduced this new election dashboard. So wherever you live, you can find all of this information and the tweets that are going on with the candidates. And so I think, again, it's a very relevant, powerful communication platform. Uh, Certainly management is getting its footing, learning sort of how to behave as a public company. I'm still very encouraged with the future. Coming up, the battle for your wallet is escalating quickly. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Jeff Fisher, and Andy Cross. Visa and MasterCard delivered blowout earnings reports this week. Quarterly profits for both came in higher than expected, and shares of both companies up more than 10% this week. And Jeff, I know we pay a lot of attention to startup companies like Square when it comes to the payment industry, but Visa and MasterCard are just monsters. They're monsters, and they are still good investments today, I think. Uh, They have a long way to grow. Cash is still about 85% of the world's transactions. These companies are both growing sales 
around 10 to 13, 14% a year, even in a tepid environment. And their earnings are growing in the high teens uh, year over year. What's funny about the stocks going up so much this week is management at both companies is conservative and cautious about the world economy. They're saying we still haven't seen a resurgence in spending or consumers. There was a slight uptick in cross-border spending, which is important for these companies. They make more money when you go to a different country and, and spend because they make money on currency translations too. But but overall, things are still tepid, and yet they're doing so well, these two businesses. So when the economy picks up and spending picks up, the, the leverage returns these companies will make will be very strong. They could easily be growing above 20% a year again in a couple of years if the economy is stronger. So, yeah, I, I like both stocks still. Well, and both stocks had really trailed the market so far this year. So mm-hmm. they, they had trailed. They've I been think, flat for I, about a year. Yeah, I think they, the investors saw those that performance and said, hey, good things are still happening at these two companies. It's not just startup uh, companies like Square that are getting involved. Apple came out recently with Apple Pay. And just over the last few days, we've seen a little bit of a showdown where CVS and Rite Aid disabled the Apple Pay systems within their own <laughs> locations across America because they're teaming up with the likes of Walmart and Target and Lowe's to build their own mobile payment system. I like the competition. I, you know me, Andy. I love to watch a good battle playing out in the business world, but I'm wondering how smart is it to go up against the biggest public company in the world? Well, that's that's a great question, Chris. We've, we've seen this with Home Depot paired together with PayPal, and they offered uh, their uh, system inside the Home Depot stores. So I think retailers are saying, listen, there's so much innovation going on in this kind of space that maybe we don't have to be beholden to such large payers, players anymore, and we can go and partner with somebody else and build a better solution. Now, the question is, is that a good return on investment for shareholders? And that has yet to be determined. Yeah, Walmart is so tired of giving 1% or 2% to Visa and MasterCard. Yeah. But I think anytime you take away choice from a, your customer, it's not a good thing. And I, I think in the long run, they'll have to offer all sorts of payments. And it's interesting that Costco partners with, with American Express uh, for using American Express's in Costco. So you do see these unique partnerships with uh, other players to help with the payment world. But on balance, I have to believe this is a win for the merchants themselves, just having the ability to have more choices and maybe maybe not dictate terms to the payment companies, but at least have a little bit of a, an option, whereas a few years ago they didn't. Right. They had nothing. I mean, especially on the global scale. I mean, MasterCard and Visa are so, so, such large players. True. And, and that's still true because they ha- no one has the bank relationships, the <clears throat> networks that they have, the number of cards in circulation. Uh, credit cards are going to become credit codes, and I should uh, trademark that right now. You're not going to have a card anymore. It's just a code. I and think they're going to win, I think. From the perspective of smaller businesses as well, I mean, having these options that can potentially bypass uh, the card companies like Visa and MasterCard is attractive. It certainly brings the cost of business down for them. And I think, you know, you go into these small businesses today, I mean, just little little mom and pop operations, and they'll have uh, you know minimums where you you have to to buy that you can use your card, and uh, you know if there are ways to get around that, whether it's currency or something else, I you know again I think yeah more choice is obviously better. Some social media stocks had a rough week, but LinkedIn was not one of them. Third quarter revenue grew forty five percent. They're growing in China. Jason shares up more than ten percent on Friday. Yeah, and everything that LinkedIn does, everything that they they build, it's geared towards creating value for the professional and the professional network. And I, th- I think investors in LinkedIn 
should feel really, really good about what they're doing and the management team behind it all. I know I do. Um, unique visiting members grew 16%. Member page views grew 28%. So that that's a great sign that engagement is still high. And I think that's always been a concern with LinkedIn is you know the engagement factor. How often do I really need to go there? Well, they're figuring out other ways to be relevant in our lives. They've certainly opened up their publishing platform uh, to more participants, providing more content. Typically, that's going to be you know pretty high value content because it's coming from professionals and experts in their uh, respective fields. Uh, very impressed with the talent solution side of this business. I mean, this is really the money maker, and it's becoming a more significant part of the business as time goes on. A 60% of sales uh, today, it was 57% in 2013 and 55% in 2012. Uh, this is a very, very sticky sort of offering. Once you get people in there buying those those licenses, and, and obviously we're, our, our HR department uses, uses LinkedIn as well, uh, they find the value in that, and, and they can start you know incrementally raising prices as time goes on, which is extremely powerful. And then this, this new tool they've built, Sales Navigator, uh, is going to be something that really, I think, uh, empowers sales professionals. I mean, sales is obviously a, a significant, uh, you know, part of the of the U.S. economy. Um, so, yeah, all all signs point towards LinkedIn uh, really on message, and, and the stock continues to do well. Yeah, the Sales Navigator is a really interesting tool, and potentially very disruptive for LinkedIn and for for its members to really tap into a new marketplace that they haven't tapped into before. Absolutely. Third quarter results for Buffalo Wild Wings sure look good. Stock up 10% this week. And Andy, we've talked before, the whole concept of beer wing uh, wings and sports is a simple one. Yeah. But boy, they do a great job of executing it. Yeah, they do, especially with, with so much their in, in-house experience, which now they've they've um, really improved that and they will continue to improve that. And and Chris, they're also expanding. They partnered with, with a concept called called Rusty Taco, which is in Texas, Minnesota, and California. I wish we had some Rusty Tacos here to share tonight. <laughs> um, and also Pizza Rev. So they really are starting to broaden out just beyond the wings. But so much of that quarter was great, and they fought off rising chicken prices too. So they've really demonstrated the results for the, uh, con- for the consumer. Well, let's bring in our man Steve Broido from the other side of the glass. Steve, you go to Buffalo Wild Wings, they've got 21 different sauces ranging from sweet barbecue to blazon. And I'm quoting from the menu here. If you're ordering the blazon sauce, it says, keep away from your eyes, pets, and children. <laughs> uh, scale of 1 to 21, how hot do you like your wings? 1. One solid one, not twenty-one, just one. Let's keep it mellow. You're that risk averse when it comes to the spice. I don't like spicy. It's just too much to think about. So I'll volunteer that I've gone as as high as the mango habanero, which is I think one or two uh, away from the from the spiciest, and those things are dangerous. Drop us an email, radio at fool dot com. How hot do you like your wings? Up next. How will Berkshire Hathaway thrive when Warren Buffett is no longer there? Author Lawrence Cunningham talks about Berkshire beyond Buffett. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. There's a better way to borrow money. It's called Prosper.com, and it's turning the lending industry on its head. Borrow up to $35,000 at a low fixed rate without setting foot in a bank. To check your rate instantly... Go to Prosper.com slash fool and get a $50 Visa gift card when you get a loan. Prosper.com slash fool. Other restrictions apply. See site for program Visa prepaid card details. All personal loans are made by WebBank, a Utah Chartered Industrial Bank member FDIC. Equal opportunity lender. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Warren Buffett has said one of the things he likes to see in a company is a wide moat, a competitive advantage, 
And Buffett has built Berkshire Hathaway into a collection of more than 70 businesses protected by moats, which begs the question, what is Berkshire Hathaway's moat? And if Berkshire's biggest competitive advantage is Warren Buffett himself, what happens after he's gone? Lawrence Cunningham is a professor of law at George Washington University, and he tackles these questions in his latest book, Berkshire Beyond Buffett, The Enduring Value of Values. Lawrence, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. What do you think is going to be the hardest part of Warren Buffett to replace at Berkshire Hathaway? Because he really is so much more than an investor for Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, he's an investor and a manager and a, and a cheerleader, and uh, he has a bundle of qualities that are unique in a single individual, and and that complexity is is why the succession plan calls for his job to be split uh, three or four ways, really. Uh, someone to take charge of investments, somebody in charge of acquisitions, somebody chairing the board, and then uh, a sort of different group as, as, as a shareholder. Um, and yeah, I mean the the part that's the hardest. I mean they're all they're all tricky in, in different ways. And, and I, I hasten to add that it will be manageable. People, <laughs> there are people capable and qualified to to succeed and, and fill some very big shoes. But but probably probably that uh, that the attitude the attitude of, of value investor that that he epitomizes is you know that sort of dispassionate. Um, uh, very uh, non-emotional, analytical uh, capability. It's kind of a, the strongest suit uh, that, that he has, and the one that uh, few, few, you know, few of us uh, more, more, more mortals have. So um, I, I think that's probably the, the, the trickiest thing. But as, as I say, not not insurmountable. And there's there's a very deep bench uh, ready to fill all of those various roles. And as you mentioned, there's various roles: investor, manager cheerleader. The communications part is obviously very important. But let's not kid ourselves. Warren Buffett, certainly in recent years, has been a successful investor in part because he's been able to get terms from businesses that he's investing in that maybe the average investor couldn't. And so I'm curious because, Lawrence, there's not a CEO in the world who, when they hear that Warren Buffett is on the phone waiting to talk to you, they're taking his call immediately. But I'm just curious if the next person is going to be able to get everybody to pick up the phone when it's time to make a deal. Yeah, probably there, there's a unique quality there. But I mean, the, 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 the reasons Warren or, or Berkshire have been able to, to get those spectacular uh, one-off investments are only partly to do, do with, with Warren as a personality and, and, a, and a charismatic character. It's it's really the values that he stands for that he that he's baked into Berkshire, which I chronicle in the book, and which I think will survive him. Just to take two two examples, one is the sense of permanence uh, at Berkshire. Um, it has never sold a subsidiary that it acquired in in the past forty years. So this is a signal of very patient capital, uh, a commitment to to buy and to be around uh, until the end. Um, and uh, Warren has made that commitment, but now it's a part of Berkshire itself, and so that kind of commitment will probably survive him. And the second example is autonomy. That is, Berkshire reposes trust and confidence in the managers of its subsidiaries and of its investees, for that matter, and lets them call their own shots and, and sing their own tunes. And so when take the 2008 crisis, for instance, when 
very many companies had a great need for urgent capital. They turned to Berkshire because they appreciated that they would provide permanent uh, deferential capital. I call it patient and quiet capital. So Berkshire you know, bought spectacularly profitable positions in Bank of America, General Electric, Goldman Sachs, USG, and others. In large part, those those very attractive terms were in large part due to this this commitment, these characteristic traits of of permanence and autonomy. And so, certainly Warren developed and nurtured them, but has now baked them into the culture of Berkshire. So that even if he were not around, uh, whichever successor, whichever one of the uh, current operating managers had his job. So long as they understand those values and and live by them, uh, Berkshire can continue to you know attract special opportunities as it has in the past. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Lawrence Cunningham. His new book is Berkshire Beyond Buffett, The Enduring Value of Values. Warren Buffett has mentioned that structurally, it's very difficult for most companies to become large, but at the same time, he believes Berkshire doesn't really have these problems. With that in mind, can Berkshire Hathaway become the first trillion-dollar company? Oh, that's a neat forecast. Yeah, it's a, one of the um, uh, thoughts about Berkshire's ability to grow without being uh, too cumbersome is its decentralized structure. That that concept of autonomy I was referring to, so that um, there is not a heavy bureaucracy at the top or at the center, but instead a very uh, horizontal structure. So uh, a company with that degree of decentralization and that level of, of autonomous uh, responsibility in the managers could be you know, twice the size of, of, of Berkshire. It doesn't have that kind of built-in limitation that if one person in charge of everything, uh, it's just impossible for one person to know all that's required. And so um, that that's an important part of the Berkshire longevity, and could it become a trillion? I mean, there's there's no, I, I don't see any particular reason why, why not. Uh, but I haven't really predicted how it would get there, how long it would take. From a cultural standpoint, are there lessons that other businesses can borrow from Berkshire Hathaway, or is the fact that it is this unique decentralized collection of so many businesses does it make it? Maybe something to admire from a business standpoint, but there aren't really applicable lessons. Yeah, it's it's a really nice point, and I, I kind of bookend my uh, my book with 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 those thoughts. Like the first sentence of my book is Berkshire Hathaway is an accident, so suggesting that you know it never had a strategic plan, it doesn't have a business plan. It has simply been accretive over a long period of time, and now it is this um, very substantial. Uh, entity that I then ex- explain is united by specific cultural traits. So at the end of the book, I'm able to step back and say, you know, I don't think that an entrepreneur getting going today would necessarily benefit from saying, I- I'm going to plan out to create a Berkshire Hathaway. My strategic plan is going to be to follow uh, this. Never, but that said, there are lessons from the specific companies within the firm, the business challenges that people have faced. Um, the entrepreneurial spirit that so many of the business founders and, and, and leaders have demonstrated. So it's not so much a, you know, let, let's replicate this, this organization, but let's be inspired and learn from the, the, the cultural traits, the corporate cultures that you see at all the, the individual subsidiaries that, you know, I explain amount to a conglomerate 
culture. So it's not like a, a textbook or a blueprint, but rather a kind of a, a, a toolkit or a, a, a group of, uh, of values that, that can be useful to, to different people in different settings. One of the biggest deals Berkshire Hathaway has been involved in over the last few years uh, was the acquisition of Heinz, but that was done in conjunction with 3G. And given the results and given how well that has gone since the acquisition, I'm curious, what are the odds that the next CEO of Berkshire Hathaway is not one of the operators of the internal business? What if? What are the odds that it comes from someone at 3G or any other external company? Well, it's it's certainly theoretically possible and, and uh, operationally, strategically, and so on. But what what the board has has said publicly that is that they have identified a potential successor, and that that person is currently working at Berkshire Hathaway. If I could take your question in a slightly different direction, because I, I think the three G uh, Berkshire partnership in acquiring Heinz can be a model for Berkshire acquisitions going forward. The nice thing about that transaction is that the businessmen and women at 3G did all of the homework that conducted extensive due diligence and, and evaluated the target and figured out, well, this company, if redone in certain ways, could be worth so much more, and then teed it up to Berkshire, which could just make a yes-no decision on a 50-50 venture, and a, a one in which Berkshire has the right, basically, the option to buy the other half in about seven years, if it likes what has happened, and otherwise just to sit. So you you have another firm doing a lot of the work, uh, teeing it up and giving Berkshire uh, an option. That's the kind of structure that would be welcomed by any any Warren himself. No doubt likes it to have other people teeing it up that way. But it would be very valuable and very beneficial for a successor to him as a new uh, vehicle, a new pipeline through which um, attractive transactions are, are are pitched to Berkshire. Last question, and then I'll let you go. You've been writing about Warren Buffett for a long time. What is something that you appreciate about him now that you may not have appreciated as much when you first started writing about him? Well, the very that that's a great question. I, I do learn from him, uh, you know, every other year. You know, there's something there's something new and spectacular. But I, I think one of the best lessons that that that, that he taught me was when I first um, compiled a collection of his letters to shareholders called The Essays of Warren Buffett, Lessons for Corporate America, and I uh, provided an introduction. And it was a very, it was a novel idea, interesting product, and um, the publishers in in New York were all very eager to have, uh, to publish that as as a book. And, uh, you know, really uh, dined and and wined me and encouraging me and I was very tempted to, to uh, take it to them, and I uh, asked Warren what he thought, uh, would it be okay, and so on. And he said, look, you can do whatever you want, but I discourage you from doing that. I think you ought to just publish it yourself, uh, just self-publish it. You don't need uh, that infrastructure. You can do it on your own. And at first, you know, this was, bef- this was in 1997, so this is, Amazon was barely going. Uh, there was no PayPal. Everything was going to be printed and distributed by UPS, you know, from my apartment. There were no e-books. And so it was a daunting proposition to me, but I thought, well, that's what Warren recommends. And really, he was he was saying, you know, that that's what I really uh, needed to do. Uh, so I, I, I went that route. Uh, it was hard work, uh, you know, sweat equity. I, I really toiled uh, assiduously for, for many years uh, doing that. But he was right. It turned out to be spectacularly rewarding for me. 
professionally, uh, economically, and so on, uh, that uh, you know his his judgment was just so spot on. And uh, um, so, I mean, that that's the story that resonates best with me. And but every, every year I I learn something significant like that that from him. But that's probably the most significant one that I've that I've kept with me. The book is Berkshire Beyond Buffett, The Interring Value of Values. It is already an Amazon bestseller. Lawrence Cunningham, thanks so much for being here. Pleasure, Chris. Thank you. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. If you As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Jeff Fisher, and Andy Cross. You can always email us. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Guys, before we get to the stocks on our radar, let's dip into the Fool mailbag. An email from Jeff D., who writes, I've been studying the market for about a year. I finally mustered up the courage to invest a month ago, and I put a nice chunk of money into a stock that looked promising, consistently beating Wall Street's estimates and constantly innovating. The company just released earnings, and almost immediately, the stock fell 10% and then further the next day. My question is, how can I consider any investment to be safe and sound if at any given quarter an earnings report can instantly demolish the stock? How can someone know if a report will be good or bad? On the other hand, I can't imagine hedge fund managers who manage billions of dollars just cross their fingers and hope for the best. So how do I hedge myself against this risk? Thanks a billion. P.S. The stock I'm talking about is Twitter. I love this email for a lot of reasons, particularly the P.S. Um, but I, Jeff, I, I'll start with you. I think this is a question that a lot of investors have uh, because it's great that Jeff's doing his due diligence mm-hmm. and doing some research before just jumping in. But yeah, on a gut level, it's just kind of deflating when you feel like I've made a good choice, particularly your first investment, and then it gets whacked. So true. But the one thing that stands out is he invested about a month ago. And the first thing Jeff needs to do is really extend his time horizon. He may not have done anything wrong at all buying Twitter. He just needs to wait and let it come to fruition. Three years from now, the stock could be much, much higher. Who knows? But the other thing is, as you're starting out, yeah, you have limited funds, but try to start to build a portfolio, even if it's one stock at a time. Get up to seven, eight, ten stocks over over the next couple of years. Because you never know how any single stock is going to do. You need a portfolio, and then you need to let those companies go as long as you still believe in them. Because the only way you'll compound wealth is to let things go for years and years. Uh, Andy, for someone who is just starting out and they're thinking in terms not just of their first stock, but maybe four or five, something like that, any advice on how to uh, to go back to Jeff's question, sort of to hedge their risk, to sort of balance out their portfolio? Is it to think in terms of large caps versus small caps? Is it better to think in terms of industries or a mix? Yeah, you, I think I think a mix is the, is the answer, Chris. You really want to build out that diversified portfolio that Jeff talked about. In Stock Advisor, we talk about going to more than at least 15 stocks as you build out your portfolio because that way you diversify yourself across industries and, and market capitalization. So it's large and small companies. You start to build out a portfolio that can sustain one or two stocks moving dramatically in any given quarter. 
All right, let's get to the Stocks on Our Radar. Stocks on Our Radar sponsored this week by Prosper.com. If you've got a home improvement project or you're starting a business, you can borrow up to $35,000 at a low fixed rate with Prosper. Their peer-to-peer marketplace connects people looking to borrow money with those who have money to lend. To check your rate instantly, go to Prosper.com slash fool, and you get a $50 Visa gift card when you get a loan. That's Prosper.com slash fool. Let's bring in our man, Steve Brodo, from the other side of the glass. He'll hit you with a question. Andy Cross, what's on your radar this week? I got Priceline. Priceline is going to report earnings, the online travel company and the uh, parent of Name Your Own Price and Kayak and Priceline.com um, and uh, will report earnings. And I really want to see how a lot of the international travel bookings are going. We know Europe, which is a big market for Priceline. Europe is really struggling right now, so I want to see how consumers are using um, Booking.com's service. And the ticker symbol for Priceline? PCLN. Steve, question about Priceline? Would Priceline be Priceline without William Shatner? <laughs> That's not a joke. I'm serious. He's such a big part of that. Well, he he campaign. used he he used to be he used to be Booking.com. Uh, that's really in the U.S. Steve. Booking.com is the big European property. Will Shatner not quite as big over there. So you're saying Shatner big in North America, less so the rest of the planet, <laughs> the rest of the universe. <laughs> Captain, nice. Jeff Fisher, what's on your radar this week? So for the first time in history, pretty soon the public can own a part of Ferrari. Uh, Fiat Chrysler plans to spin off Ferrari, take it public. It'll be listed on the U.S. Stock Exchange. I think it'll be really fun to watch this company go public to see their financials and to see how they do over the over the course of history. They they made only 7,000 cars last year. And what's interesting to me is their chairman said Ferrari will never make an electric car. Never. <laughs> ever. I don't know about that. I, uh, when you have like a, a Tesla SUV blow a Ferrari off the line, you know, much faster uh, that's embarrassing for a Ferrari. So, it, it, but it'll be a fun company to watch. Not public yet. Any sense of when the IPO is coming? Uh, it's almost November now. I think it's uh, early next year. Couple number of months. Steve, interested in Ferrari? How many Ferraris have you seen on the road in the last one year, Jeff Fisher? More than one. I'd, you know, Washington D.C. is a little uppity. The government <laughs> government pays themselves well. I've seen probably three or four. I've seen a lot more Teslas, though. All right, Jason Moser, what's on your radar? Uh, taking a look again at Control Four ticker is CTRL. Uh, it's a stock I've I've talked about here before, but Control Four uh, plays into the greater long term trend of the smart home and the Internet of Things. Uh, so Control Four makes the products that are connected, as well as the connectors or the brains of the operation themselves. And uh, so earnings came out for Control Four on Thursday after the market closed. Uh, great quarter, beat on earnings, beat on sales, uh, guiding guiding to a strong future here. Great strategic relationships with uh, companies like Toll Brothers Home Builders to get those those devices in in those homes and, and really playing into that longer term trend. Uh, Gartner study by the year uh, 2022 says a typical family home will probably contain somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 uh, connected devices, and, and so Control Four is playing into that space. And, and I've I've done field research into this, speaking to dealers, speaking to users, and I have yet to come across a a bad review of Control 4 yet. So that's what I'm focused on. Steve? Will customers tolerate failure in this market? I think that's probably the biggest advantage that Control 4 has at this point is a bad user experience because Control 4 is professionally installed stuff. It's not for the do-it-yourselfers. They see that as a great opportunity to offer up a terrific experience with a successful system that will keep people coming back for more. Steve, what do you like? 
I may have to go with Ferrari. Sounds like fun. <laughs> They're very fast cars. All right, guys. Thanks for being here. That's going to do it for this week's show. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. Our engineer is Steve Brodo. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next week.